So the whole basis of this technology is predict the next word, predict what yes. you're going to say. And what that means is that by its very nature, fundamentally, it's trying to give you average expected results. So if you want to write something that's novel, that's interesting, that other people aren't saying, you almost have to start from the point of view that you have this like semi-adversarial relationship with the way that it's designed. I love that. And you need to be thinking about, okay, how can I almost like get past what it thinks first I should be talking about and get into the deeper stuff that's further away, that's less average or less expected or less predictable. And so, yeah, having a prompt where you ask something like, what are the counterintuitive things here? What would I not think of on this topic? What's something that most people believe that's untrue? There are various ways to kind of dig into it. Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform with AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit hubspot.com slash service to learn more. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner. I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Kieran Flanagan. But today we have a very special guest for all of you watching. We are joined by Rob Lennon. Rob has spent 16 plus years in startups, has written over 45 books, and is a student and fanatic of AI. And that is why we are all together today. Today we are diving into the practical applications of artificial intelligence today and making some predictions for AI in 2023. Kieran, one of your favorite topics. You pumped to do AI today? Can never talk enough about AI. <laughs> <laughs> I saw someone tweet, this is like Clubhouse, right? Like this is going to be hype. And then we're going to realize there's no use cases. That person could not be more wrong. That is the stupidest take about artificial intelligence I've ever heard. Clubhouse is really just another form of something we already do. Yes. You know, with the tools that we have and it actually fill the need for a time where people were stuck in their houses. But the difference with OpenAI is it unlocks completely new things. So one of the things we wanted to start on, Rob, is just that very point. And so I still do think the reason that person probably made that comparison is because a lot of people use ChatGPT as like a toy, right? It's like an addictive toy. And you're kind of just there asking the questions, asking the questions. Three hours have passed and you've realized you actually have not used chat GPT to help you with work, you've used it to help you forget the fact that you have to do real work, right? It's just like, I don't want to actually do the things I want to do. I'm just going to play with chat GPT instead. But I do think there's people out there that have already figured out how to actually use this in their everyday work and start to make their work much more impactful, much more efficient. And I know that you are helping to teach people how to integrate chat GPT as it is now, like not a future version, the version that it is today, how people can actually build their content systems around that. So I wanted to like give the floor to you and maybe tell us what the people and marketers who kind of use it as a toy, like, oh, I'll just play around this thing, then go do my real work are missing. Like, what are some of the unlocks that are going to make people think, wow, I hadn't really thought about using the tool for that in my everyday work. And specifically, I think content creators. You know, it can be applied to almost every aspect of the content process. 
And so really part of the challenge in deciding how to use a tool like this is deciding where you're going to use it and where you're not going to use it. Because when you start down this path, you can kind of just use it for everything. For me and the process that I teach, we start with the topics and the audience and the intersection of what do I want to write about or create content around? And then what does my audience have problems or challenges or frustrations with? And so you can run queries like asking well, what does ChatGPT think the problems are that my audience is experiencing? I'd use a framework called FFGAs, which is fears, frustrations, goals, and aspirations. And so I'll just ask it straight up. Let's like take email copywriting or something like that. For email copywriters, what are really important fears, frustrations, goals, and aspirations? And it'll give you a list of things that are common challenges that people need to solve. So from there, you're inspired and you can start to go, okay, these are some really good subjects. And I already have a hook here. Like, you know, some people learning copywriting are worried about coming across as salesy, let's say. So you dig into that topic a little bit more. If you have your own ideas, I think it's always a good thing to stop and kind of write down what you think before asking the AI, because you might bypass your own knowledge and experience yeah. because it's so cool to like type it in. So sometimes I'll make some quick notes or I'll even give it a suggestion. So I'll say, uh, you know, let's break this down further, you know, for example, and then I'll give it some of my ideas and then I'll say, well, what are some other ideas that we can explore on this topic? So you can use it to break things down further and further. From there, there's outlining and synthesis and different ways that you can use a tool. So let's say you've now spent, oh, wow, I spent an hour on ChatGPT. I have this huge, long conversation. An awesome trick that you can do is say, hey, for this chat that we've had, can you summarize all of the most important information or can you outline the content that we've been developing together? And it'll understand what you're talking about. Go back through the conversation and return to you like a modified version of that hour long session that now you can use as the outliner basis for your content. So even using the tool to like take care of the, the excesses of information that it will produce for you, because it will, right? It's analysis paralysis and information overload are going to be huge problems for early adopters of AI because it's just so good at spitting stuff out. So you want to learn the techniques to then use it to consolidate and synthesize that same information. So that's kind of the beginning of that process. One of the ones I really like is uh, research, right? Actually, the biggest part of any great content or one of the biggest parts of any creating any great content is like how well you research that topic or like trying to find things within the research that can spin a different angle that can help you cover it with a different point of view. And you have this really cool prompt that you shared in one of your Twitter threads, which is give me the kind of counterintuitive opinion on this thing, like the thing that is less common, the thing that no one really thinks about. And people don't think about like, using it in that way, which is like, you know, how do I probe both sides of the argument and give AI to give me the pros and the cons? And so it's really, when you think about researching, what I really looked at in the kind of prompts that you shared in that Twitter thread, the prompt is so important because if you just prompt it in the same way that 90% of the people will, your content is going to be the same as 90% of the people who use that tool to produce that content. But if you're really creative in the prompts, what you get back from chat GBT is much, much better. And is that somewhat different from Google? Because like, if you think about Google, Google is trying to like condense you down into like a simplistic two word search, mm -hmm. trying to get everyone to search the same way. Whereas chat GBT, the more uniquely you can probe it, the better the content you can get from it. And I'm wondering, like curious about what's your process to iterate through prompts? So the whole basis of this technology is predict the next word, predict what yes. you're going to say. And what that means is that by its very nature, fundamentally, it's trying to give you average expected results. So if you want to write something that's novel, that's interesting, that other people aren't saying, 
you almost have to start from the point of view that you have this like semi-adversarial relationship with the way that it's designed. I love that. And you need to be thinking about, okay, how can I almost like get past what it thinks first I should be talking about and get into the deeper stuff that's further away, that's less average or less expected or less predictable. And so, yeah, having a prompt where you ask something like, what are the counterintuitive things here? What would I not think of on this topic? What's something that most people believe that's untrue? There are various ways to kind of dig into it. I'll also, sometimes I'll query and I'll ask a basic question and it'll give me the average results and then I'll go, okay, what are some uncommon or less well-known answers to the same question? And then then you get the real list and you almost need to give it a chance to get those bad ideas out to get to the real meat of something. So that's one strategy where we're doing this like really overtly, right? We're prompting it and we're specifically saying, give me something novel or, or interesting or um, original. You can also be tricky with your prompts and say things like write a poem about copywriting or write about this topic in the style of Maya Angelou or in the style of uh, Jules Verne. Or like there are ways where you can give it some kind of weird aspect of the prompt that causes these other relationships of information to appear in the neural network. And sometimes that poem actually has some truth about your topic that you could never get if you just asked it straight up, like, tell me about this topic. But you'll read that and you'll take that for inspiration. So I think the lesson for content creators is there's this temptation to have it just spit out like the content for you. But really, a lot of its power is sometimes in kind of doing this research and digging and finding those little nuggets of inspiration that otherwise would be almost impossible to come up with on your own. And make sure you don't skip that step as you're going through and go straight to generating content. What strikes me as interesting here is that I think a lot of people use AI, or in this case, we're talking a lot about chat GPT. It's like, you still have the blank page problem that you do with, with regular writing. You're like, oh, okay, got this blank page staring at me. What do I do? What do I say? What do I write? And the advice that you're giving, Rob, that I don't think I've heard really anybody talking about is you actually need to have a lot of different iterations. Like, let's say you have a subject that you want to copyright about or write an email about or what have you. If you just say like, hey, help me write the best email about this subject, you're going to miss all of the value. The value is actually going to come from having 10, 15 different prompts for different styles, different research, different topics that are all related to that core topic, but are really actually going to give you more of the research and point of view and perspective that you're actually looking for to have help to actually shape your own thoughts. Is that is that right? Is that how you're using it today? So that's how it starts. Okay. You know, it, it starts as an exploration. Now, I've been sort of knee deep in this for weeks now or in chat GPT for weeks in GPT based technologies for years since GPT-2 came out in like 2018, 2017, something like that. So I've been playing with this stuff for a while and it's, it starts with just a lot of little experiments. Over time, you can start to consolidate some of those things and build what I call mega prompts where you have it skip steps or do steps all at the same time. So like for this topic, come up with three uncommon subtopics for each subtopic. Think of one common fear that's related to that subtopic. For each fear, come up with one counterintuitive idea to, to resolve that fear and, and tell me those. So like I'm sort of compressing what was originally a longer session into a single prompt that can kind of give me a shortcut that's straight to something that might actually be an interesting topic. But you know that if you start to do that, if you create these mega prompts, by skipping steps, you're also skipping potential inspiration. And even just by asking it to do something in a single prompt versus in multiple prompts separately, you will get different results. And so just kind of be aware, like, yeah, that's a great shortcut if you're optimizing for time. But 
also doing it in a more detailed way will probably always get you more results, provided that you don't distract yourself or, you know, fall victim to the, the sort of mindset of, oh, I need to keep pressing the button. I call it the slot machine effect. You like you keep hitting the button and see what comes out, hit the button, see what comes out, hit the button, see what comes out. And you're not even really paying attention anymore. You're just pressing that button to get the dopamine and the excitement of <laughs> it generating something for you. It's like I went on to use it to help me with some content I was creating. And then I end up spending about, honestly, it's embarrassing, but a good hour trying Lies, to get it to multiple write. multiple hours. Come on, tell us the truth. <laughs> this was at 2 a.m. in the morning. Oh, dude, this is why you can't sleep, man. Come on. I know. I know. You know what I was making it do? I was trying to get it to rewrite the end of Jerry Maguire, where Jerry Maguire was confessing, you know, his love. You know that famous line where he goes, you completely. But every time he went to say it, he got distracted by how bad he felt for stealing the goldfish at the start of the film. <laughs> I was like, could not get it to do it in the way I wanted it to do it. You spent an hour on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was why like, why didn't you just write it yourself, man, in an hour? I just got obsessed with like, this would be so funny if I can get it to do it in the way I wanted to do it. But it wouldn't, it, it kept writing it as like a romantic novel versus like a Monty Python sketch, basically. I should have actually seen if he could write it in the form of a Monty Python sketch. But what one of the things I still don't know if I'm convinced on is like, if I sit down with five writers... And, you know, all things being equal, all five of them are, you know, have mastered chat GPT. I still think that the best writer is the one who has great ideas and differentiated points of views and differentiated angles. And I don't know if chat GPT helps you on the idea or your differentiation part so much as gives you the information in such a clear and concise format that it sparks those things within you, right? I keep saying this on this show, but I, I really think of chat GPT as not that it's replacing the search engine, but it's something very different. It's like a search assistant. So it's actually parsing all of the search results for you and putting them in a much neater package. So you can actually retain more, you can get more of the information and it takes you way less time to get that information. But I've been playing with it in terms of like the blank page problem, or I just need to write something on, you know, X topic. And I think about the differentiation of what I'm going to say versus what everyone else is going to say. And I really like some of your prompts for that, Rob. But I still don't know if it helps a writer excel at those things, unless those things are things you have mastery of to begin with. And I, I wonder what you think about that, Rob. There's a very real risk that technologies like this are going to ruin certain writers because they'll never explore the depths of their own creativity yes. when the creativity is being spoon-fed to them. And so I've actually had people ask me, hey, I don't know copywriting very well. I'm trying to learn. Should I learn that first or should I like learn to use AI first? And I don't know what the answer is going to be. I'm, I'm very worried for them. Because on the one hand, if you can learn it correctly, if you can learn how to use it to augment what's inside of you, you're going to learn faster. You're going to be more successful in the short term and the long term. But on the other it's genuinely an addictive interface and it makes things easier. And we know from all facets of life that when things are easy, we don't learn as much. Like you learn the most yes. from pushing past your boundaries. So by giving everybody this crutch, uh, I think that the medium term thing that we're going to see maybe five or 10 years from now is actually a lack of people with really high levels of writing ability. There's not going to be enough. Like there's going to have been this moment in time where people stopped learning as much about the craft of writing because they were able to rely on something to produce pretty good results without them having to to have explored it. 
And the people who actually have written, you know, thousands upon thousands or millions upon millions of words over that period of time, there are going to be far fewer of them. In a funny way, many writers are worried about their jobs right now. And I think that some of that is very understandable and, and there's going to be some shakeups. But in the long run, there's actually going to be a shortage of good writers and people who are really good at getting results that go beyond what the AIs can do. That's going to be a very in-demand skill. I think it, it's sort of a fascinating reversal is going to take place. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. But I just want to jump in there with one take on something you said, you know, of AI spoon feeding creativity was a, a phrase you use. My hot take on AI and creativity is AI is just a mirror for your own creativity. I actually don't think AI helps people be more creative. I think it can help them research. I think it can help them organize their thought. I think it can maybe help them see other perspectives. But you still have to have your own point of view, your own creativity, your own awareness of the world to get there. And I don't think AI helps people do that. I think if you're mediocre and you overly constrain your thinking, AI is just going to reflect back a really tight, overly constrained version of the topic that you are trying to create on. I think that there's two things. I think AI tooling, it at least gives you more time to be creative because we spend so much of our time on the tooling and the execution and how do we get these tools to work. It allows someone who is creative, has incredible yeah, ideas. I, I, hold on. I think that's total bullshit, dude. We haven't let me finish my points. No, but no. But I think if you're creative, you are creative whether you have five minutes or an hour. Okay. Okay, like is, okay. is, 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 that's my point. People who don't have enough time to be creative aren't actually creative. They're, they're actually not doing the work and have the discipline to do what they need to do. Okay, so like your point is actually not against my point. So let me finish my point <laughs> okay, and then you can tell me if go, you agree or disagree. Go. My point was actually enables people who are creative but are held back by tooling to actually be able to execute on their ideas. So I think it actually opens creativity up to more people because I think if you're a great writer, a great artist, like these kind of things. Sometimes if you don't know these tools or don't know how to execute on it, then actually your work never gets out into the wild. I, I think that's totally false. I think that's totally false. I think if you're actually great at those things, you figure out how to get it to the world. I don't think that's true. I think there's people that are bad at technology that are incredibly creative. And if they have to go from idea to actually live idea in a short amount of time with a lot less work, I think you're going to see them being able to do things they wouldn't be able to do without AI. I think you both are wrong. <laughs> Please, um, that's fine. To me, the, what's, what's more interesting about the creative process is, or I see there's two types of ways that things get written or created. One is kind of methodical where you build up, you create an outline, you fill it in, you kind of have an idea, you edit your work, you, you're working carefully towards a completed idea. And then on the other side, we have like getting into a flow state and just really like almost 
effortlessly ideas are coming out of you and you're you're not even really sure where they come from and like in fiction writing and so forth uh, getting into flow can be really important for finding those scenes that really resonate with people and and tap into our emotions so when we have a an ai tool with us we're much more likely to be in that number one like that first zone where we're we're sort of methodically working through the creation of our content in almost like a scientific way or we're exploring we're editing we're finding we're getting things done and the risk is that if you really are someone who's more improvisational and where a state of flow is better for you, it's going to kind of pull you from that working style because the AI is going to be sitting there tempting you to ask it stuff and to do stuff with it. And you won't be flowing at all unless I suppose there might be one day a, a flow state that you get into with AI where it's symbiotic. But, you know, so, so that's the concern for me because I'm actually a, a big flow state writer. And so I like to get inspired and get myself to a certain point and then close everything, focus, put on my music and just go. And that's the big risk. I think I have good ideas for video and music, right? I believe that whether that's true or not, I do not know. But <laughs> I if do. I could go from prompt <laughs> to finished video, I will be able to understand whether that is true or not much, much quicker. Hmm. I agree with that. But today that is not accessible to me. So that is my point about like, That's fair. if I can go from prompt to beats, yeah, I think it does lower the barrier and allow people to like really figure out if they're if the creativity they believe they have, they can bring it to fruition much, much faster. The other thing I think is really interesting about AI, and maybe this is for, you know, the generation that's going to grow up with it, is human evolution has accelerated with technology, but humans' smartness has like gone down over time, right? So like the reason that we see evolution go up is because humans are much more connected. So we're able to learn from each other far faster. And so you have like one collective brain, Tim Urban wrote about that and wait, but why? And AI is like, it's unfathomable how AI is going to impact that. To your point, Rob, like we may see evolution speed up, but humans become like much more in the background. You know, humans don't actually need to do anything. And so they just become, you know, dumber over time. And I think that's a fascinating trend that technology has kind of caused, uh, with, you know, with civilization. Something you said reminded me, I have a friend who's a movie director and he started to get really into stable diffusion and some of the other AI art tools, uh, Dolly and Dolly 2 when they came out and the way he was using it was really fascinating. He was writing movie scripts and he's pitching these to, you know, major studios and he would generate pictures of like some of the ideas. He's often in the sci-fi genre. So like some of the ideas for the scene so that they could actually see like, this is what it could look like up to the point of like taking certain celebrities, like actors and actresses who they wanted in the films and putting them in like a costume with via a prompt to be like, well, this is what this person would look mm, like yeah. in this role. Like, mm, and I this is that. what the setting could look like. And when you think about a film that could have like, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of budget spent, being able to create a picture as you know, like, he's mostly a writer. Mm -hmm. He's not an illustrator. He can't do that stuff. So to be able to bring this really cohesive concept for him was like the most empowering thing ever, even if it's not how it looks like in the end. Like very quickly, you could see, is this going to work as a creative idea or isn't it? Yeah, it gets you to a minimal viable version much, much faster. Yeah. And so you're able to test ideas and things like that much, much faster. So when you, you sit down a lot and look at the way chat GPT behaves today and the things that it can provide for people and version four of that, I think is coming in the next couple of months, which, you know, we went from GPT-2, which had 1.5 billion trend parameters to three, which had 175 billion. I'm not actually sure what four is. I actually, I don't know if you know, Rob, I haven't looked at the kind of expansion of training parameters, but we can imagine it's going to be more expansive, much better. What people don't realize is the reason chat GPT is free is because 
every question and answer the model gets, it's the learning. So like, yeah, they're making it free. They cost, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, like a million, three million a day, whatever that number was. But that is all free. And that's, I think, on credit. I think Microsoft, they're giving them credit on Azure or something like that to, to actually be able to do that. But the technology is learning every single day. So like, Rob, what do you think when you kind of like look at there into the future? What do you think are the things that could be game changing? I love this. GPT-4 predictions. Let's, let's go. GPT-4 <laughs> predictions. Where are we going to go? The amount of parameters are, are increasing so exponentially that the, the human mind can't even comprehend the numbers. Like, I, I don't remember what it is. It's got a lot of zeros. You know, it's just getting to that point. Right. Like when you talk about the national debt and stuff, it's like, yeah, I, I can't it's even. It's a lot of money, it. but it's kind of, yeah, it's the zeros. When, when GPT 3 came out, the difference between GPT 2 and GPT 3 was like night and day. GPT 2 was cool, but it really couldn't coherently put together usable content very often. It was just kind of like, oh, this is fun. Like, let's see what wacky thing it says if I try and give it something like, oh, you know, good try, GPT 2, but, you know, better luck next time. And then with GPT 3, Suddenly we had something where at first it was SEOs and, and some more templated content. But then as they evolved GPT-3, it was even other content where, hey, this actually works. This can write ad copy. This can write all sorts of things. I think we're going to see a similar evolution when we come to GPT-4, where it's going to really jump from only working in kind of a specific case to really having a lot of versatility and seeming like, oh man, like something has really changed here. And the way that they call chat GPT sort of GPT 3.5 suggests to me that we're getting a preview of a smarter model in chat GPT. And if you compare the results there to, like I've compared it to a lot of other tools, it's clearly the most capable AI for anything related to content or conversations or a lot of these things. It's to the point where it ruins you if you go back to some of these other tools, like you go in, or I won't name names, but mm-hmm. other major AI companies that have a chat-based tool that they're trying to market heavily right now, none of them are anything like ChatGPT in terms of how effective they are. So I think that, yeah, it's, it's just going to become, yeah, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. But I, my hopes are very high or my anticipation is very high in terms of what it's going to be capable of doing. Because mm-hmm. OpenAI at the moment is, for the most part, like AWS for AI, then it's really relying on companies built on top of it. And at the moment, releasing chat GPT for free kind of kills a lot of the companies that have, or, or crushes the companies that are built on top of it. So I wonder how it's going to like find the balance. Let's do this in kind of a little fun prediction format. The first question, to reframe what you were just asking, Kieran, that I'd love for us to all cover, is OpenAI a year from now, is it a back-end AI technology company like AWS? Yeah, that's the Or question. is it a front-end consumer company much more like Google? in terms of the business model, what people think about it, know about it. Like the average consumer doesn't really know about AWS or think about AWS, unlike Google, for example. So like, Rob, we'll kick it off with you. And then Kieran, I'd love to hear what you think is going to happen there. Yeah, I mean, from the business model, I think we're still looking at an AWS-like company. But OpenAI has a much more public and accessible sort of preview of all the things that you can Mm -hmm. do with it. And so it's hard to make a comparison because the average person cannot upload a file to an S3 bucket successfully. Like there's so much about AWS that's just completely opaque. So I think in a way it's like, um, okay, you remember like commercials on television? No, (laughs) it's been a while. No, I don't. I don't ever watch those anymore. (laughs) You'd see like commercials for like things like milk. Oh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Like a product. So not any particular brand of milk, but milk in general. And they did that like an alliance of milk makers would do that because it increased the market awareness and sales of all milk. And OpenAI is kind of like that. 
where it's creating so much buzz around AI tools that it's going to lift the entire market up. And some vendors will benefit more than others, but that's really the market itself playing out. That's the way I see it. Kieran, back office, front office. What do you think? I think if it hadn't done the Microsoft deal, it would have been much more profitable for it to be like a front end tool Mm -hmm. uh, and to build its own front end tools because it could really dominate that market. But with the Microsoft deal, it's hard for me to imagine they're going to leave chat GPT free and actually it get much, much better in four and five because it's then kind of competing with Microsoft Bing. Like what's Mm -hmm. the point in me going to Bing and using that tool if I can just use it without having to visit Bing? Like no one visits Bing today, right? And so if Microsoft believed the big unlock for Bing is going to be integrated in ChatGPT, then there must be some sort of agreement not to have the competing product left for free. I don't know. I, I suspect... You're, you're think, we're thinking it's more AWS, more backend is what you're thinking. I think it's more AWS backend. I would like it to be front end. I think it's uh, cool if they could build all this stuff, but I suspect that it's going to be a back end AWS. I don't know that Sam Altman, the CEO there, actually wants to build a big front end consumer company. I don't yeah, know. I, don't I haven't so. seen that from his public commentary yet. So I'm tempted to go back in. The next quick prediction. When will Google's version and core competitor to chat GPT come out? Pick a month and, and a quick couple sentences to why. I think we're targeting March for Bing. And so Google is going to be maybe two months later. I feel like they, they, they're they making a lot of quiet progress. Yes. And we're going to hear a lot from I've them. I've heard about <laughs> quiet progress. I've heard the Google competitor is very good. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. But we're saying Q2. We're saying April, May is what we think. Yeah, can I add to that? One of the most yeah. interesting things about that is, okay, how do you splice a search engine together with a chat interface? And if you think about chat, what's the most comparable thing that exists in a search engine to chat GPT? It's like feature snippets. I don't know if you, you, know, mm-hmm. you go to Google, you see the little box and it tries to give you the answer there and then. Every time that we've looked at data where search pages have feature snippets, none of the links in those pages really get in clicks if it's really good, right? If the feature snippet takes all of the visibility, people get their answer, really don't need to click on those other things. And so I just wonder if you have Google, um, you know, they still need the search engine because the search engine is all of the advertising space and it's the AdWords as there's never been a better product than AdWords for making money. And there's the chat interface that you can use. What I really think is chat is just an easier product for the common person, yes. just the average user to use. It's a better user experience. And every time there's a product that is easier to use for the average user, it always wins. And so then people gravitate towards chat. And I just do not see AdWords and citations working in chats. And it's already been kind of proven because feature snippets have somewhat proven that. Like when the answer is given to you on the page, people don't click on the other links. Mm-hmm. And so even though it will give citations within the chat experience and it may give ads within chat experience, because it's going to do such a good job giving you the answer, why would you click in on any of those things? And I think that is really, to me, the most interesting part about how Bing and Google are going to try to splice these things together. Yeah, we'll see a massive decline in ad inventory, but an increase in data yeah. on the users. Yeah. Google's chat GPT competitor isn't not released to everybody because it's not available and good. It's because of AdWords. It's not released to everybody because of their business model in AdWords. Yeah. Let's be very clear. It's AdWords. That is my whole perspective on this. And that's what's affecting the timing of Google's real dominance and and trying to be a major player in AI. They're kind of being forced to build something that kills their entire business. Like, it's so interesting, right? Their their hand is getting forced. And so they have to figure out the right tests of business models to evolve that business model. It's classic innovator's dilemma problem. Yeah. Okay, so we gave everybody a few quick predictions on AI trends. I want one last before we exit. This is kind of a nerdy one. Are we going to see major like 
litigation legal precedents around how we handle AI and all the source material, copyright issues. There's a lot of issues that are fraught at the center of these training models. Are we going to see anything happen in that space this year? Yes or no, you two? I think absolutely. Although it probably won't get resolved to the point where we have some kind of standard that everyone yeah. agrees on. It's going to work its way up the court system. And this, this is probably going to be a, a multi-year legal battle that eventually we we come to some kind of consensus on whether or not your ideas belong to you. Actually, J- Jason Kanakanakis, they talked about this in the All In podcast. And he had a really good point that there's a law that exists today. It was actually brought in for bloggers because bloggers could write about like the best recipes or the best mm-hmm. restaurants to go to. And they could use Yelp. They could use all these different sources. And I think the law is like, if you're impeding someone, that publisher's ability to earn money, by citing their content, then that's really against copyright law. And OpenAI, like if you ask it for like best restaurants in Boston, New York, Dublin, it gives you all of that information and it's giving you that information because it sucked it all in from all of those platforms that rely on that search to make money. It's actually surprising that they're not more, and maybe there's no court cases going on outside of the GitHub one or outside of the Microsoft and GitHub currently being sued. I think it's going to be an explosion. Like they just ignored copyright laws and give away people's content in some form for, for free. And so there's just no way we don't see that because there's no way for these companies to make money if people start to gravitate towards chat. Look, here's my perspective to close this out. Yes, we're going to see a lot of public awareness around copyright law and some legal cases and an increase of legal cases. I don't think the core folks at OpenAI and the other AI players care. I think they're trying to take a page out of the Uber playbook, which is get our product to market, get out there, get so much adoption and so much value in the market that it can't be undone. That like it's politically unfeasible to wind back. And that's what happened with Uber versus the taxi cab lobbies, basically, right? Uber became so well used and so much preferential to the taxi cab lobbies that nothing could really ever happen. And I think that's what they're trying to do. I think this year is going to be a big and very interesting year for the legal ramifications. It's not just the copyright problems with that. It actually somewhat breaks the way the internet works. Like the internet kind of works. Yes. <laughs> not in totality, but people create content. Google give you traffic for content. <laughs> totally. If that's broken, then it's kind of broken the way the majority of the internet has kind of gone into this partnership between publishers and, and you know, aggregators. And so beyond the copyright and there has to be another way that there's a value added partnership between the people who train and create the content, the train the models, and the people who have the models to actually give you the answers. Yeah, well, it's a question of scale that's never existed before. You could look at someone's picture and paint your own version of it one at a time in the past, and that limited you. But now you can hit a button over yeah. and over and over again and paint their picture, your version of it. The things that we've kind of gotten away with in the past, well, now you can do them almost in an infinite amount. So the question is, it changes the nature of it. Well, I will leave us with this kind of little brain teaser. Maybe this is where blockchain actually comes in, everybody. Maybe we actually need a a true public ledger to help handle the attribution and payments here. If you don't mind the slowest search engine of all time, (laughs) having to write every single... Well, no, but it's like, hey, I can source this original work and I can pay some royalty to that original work. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get you, I get you. Is what I'm saying. It's like, oh, hey... 
this was returned as an answer. Mm. That answer is written on the chain. Makes this sense. was the citation and that you get paid the percent of, uh, you yeah, know, that's a good 20% idea. of royalties for that interaction. It's a very good idea. Next time, don't say it with so much surprise, Karen. You just have a tool. You publish the blockchain. The open AI has to cite its resources and when it picks your number on the blockchain, you get some sort of payment paid out in Solana. Do it with Solana. Correct. Someone needs to pump that coin because I'm, I'm in so <laughs> much right. debt. Stop pumping your bag. Get out of here. Get out of here. All right. We got, we, got, we got to close this show down. Thank you for everybody for going on our AI journey. Huge thank you to Rob Lennon for giving us a ton of practical, tactical examples for writing and especially prompts and creativity that I think we can all take advantage of here and now, as well as some pretty fun prediction conversations for the year ahead. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you real soon on Marketing Against the Great. 